Well, it's been a little while since we've been in the book of Acts. We were making our way through Acts and then took a break during the season of Lent and the season of Easter. And then as we considered the Trinity and extended look at the Trinity, uh, concluding that last week on Trinity Sunday. But as I said, now as we enter into what the church refers to as ordinary time, uh, we're returning to the book of Acts and, and jumping back in to where we left off. And so a slight bit of review is, is, is most likely in order. We'll remember that the book of Acts is written by Luke. This is part two, if you will, to his gospel we acknowledge at the front end of this that probably Luke would not like the title to the book, The Acts of the Apostles, but would much more likely want it titled something like The Continuing Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ Through the Apostles. That's kind of clumsy, so maybe he would prefer ours. But, but, uh, but because Luke, from the very beginning, we saw, really makes a point. You can tell in the way that he was telling the stories is very much demonstrating that Jesus Christ is at work. We have it coming from the mouth of the apostles as they are blessed at Pentecost after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, he is ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and then gives gifts to men. He pours out his Holy Spirit upon the apostles and those in the upper room there in Jerusalem after having told them that their commission, their mission is to go and be his witnesses. Once they receive the power of the Spirit, to go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and out to the outermost parts of the world. So they waited in Jerusalem, they received the gift of the Spirit, and then immediately get to work prophesying, and teaching, preaching right there in Jerusalem. And Luke, again, puts it on the lips of the apostles that this is because of the name of Jesus. This is Jesus in whom you have believed that has done this, whether it's the healing of the lame man at the gate beautiful or they're being released from prison or the fact that they preach and that their words have power. All of this, the apostles say, is because of the name of Jesus. And Luke is making the point that the same Jesus who was at work in his gospel is the Jesus who is at work in his church today. Though Jesus has ascended to heaven, it is there that he has made himself present with his church by the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord, is at work within the world today. So the book might be called The Continuing Works of Jesus. It's he who is at work even here at Affirmation. By the Spirit, Jesus Christ is doing his work in the world. And so the book of Acts takes on that theme, but it also takes on the theme of the Great Commission in Acts 1-8, that they are to be and we are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and out into the world. And the book has followed that basic pattern. Right? The, gospel, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles there in the upper room, and then they begin preaching and teaching in Jerusalem and Judea. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel is pushed out of Jerusalem, and off into Samaria, we see Philip go and bring the gospel to the Samaritans. And by the way, as the gospel goes out into Samaria, the Holy Spirit comes and manifests himself very powerfully and very visibly, right? With very similar to what we see in Acts chapter 19, and which we saw in Acts chapter 2, with speaking in tongues and the prophesying and so forth. And the Samaritans then receive the gift of the Spirit and and 
we'll talk about this manifestation of the Spirit, but one of the things that's happening here is that there's an outward manifestation of the reality of the fact that the Samaritans had received the same Holy Spirit, the same anointing, the same empowering as the apostles back in Jerusalem. And this would have been shocking and almost unimaginable. One, that sort of non-apostles have received this authority, but also that Samaritans. The, I mean, there's low, and then there's the Samaritans. But the Samaritans have received the same Holy Spirit that we, the apostles, we, the Jews, have received. And then the gospel moved out from there into Acts chapter 10. We saw it going out to the God-fearing Gentile Cornelius, this Roman centurion, but he too receives the Holy Spirit when he believes and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he too and his company receive these outward manifestations of the work of the Spirit. And you'll remember that in Acts chapter 10, this great moment of Cornelius receiving the Spirit and becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ comes after this grand vision that Peter had of the clean and the unclean foods. Well, really the unclean foods that now the Lord Jesus Christ had declared clean. Rise, kill, and eat, Peter. And there were a, a, a sheet full of unclean animals. And Peter, who, who took pride in the fact that he had never eaten such things and wouldn't eat them, was commanded by the Lord Jesus to rise, kill, and eat. Don't you declare unclean, he tells Peter, what I have declared clean. And Peter and the whole church was learning through this vision a very valuable and important lesson that the old covenant with its ceremonial laws with its ceremonial distinctions of clean and unclean found most obviously in food but also seen in terms of races of people that you had the clean circumcised Jews and the unclean uncircumcised Gentiles that these distinctions were now gone and when the Lord Jesus declares something clean, it's clean. And he is now declaring these foods, which once were unclean, clean and edible. It was from there that he went to the unclean house of Cornelius. But he knew, and you felt it in Acts chapter 10, him resisting. He, he wanted to call Cornelius' house unclean. He even says, ah, by all standards, I really shouldn't even be in your house eating with you. But because the Lord said, I should not declare unclean what he has declared clean I declare the truth of Jesus Christ to you Acts chapter 10 was a monumental chapter in the book of Acts because it was the Lord Jesus teaching his church that they were now entering into a new era a new epoch a new covenant a new time where the Old Testament shadows had faded away in the light of the reality of Jesus Christ then in Acts chapter 13 Paul began his missionary journeys and we've been tracking with him as he takes these journeys the first journey took him from Antioch over to Caesarea or to Cyprus excuse me and then up into uh, Turkey where he ministered to the churches there and we saw that he faced persecution ministered to the churches returned home when he returned back to Antioch a little squabble not a little squabble broke out over whether or not Gentiles should be required to be circumcised and so the apostles decided, we better meet on this. So they gathered back in Jerusalem and wrestled, again, with the implications of the covenant that they were in. What does it mean that we are on the other side of the cross and resurrection? What does it mean about these Old Testament, Old Covenant forms 
unclean and unclean foods. How about the thing that marked us out as the people of God, our circumcision? Should we require this of Gentiles? So they met in Jerusalem to powwow over it, and in the end came to the conclusion by the Spirit that indeed they must not require circumcision. And so they returned to tell the churches circumcision is not required of Gentile believers. It's no longer required. It no longer holds any covenantal significance. Now the only thing that matters is our union to the Lord Jesus Christ by the gift of faith. From there, Paul launched out on his second missionary journey, this time again going through Turkey and then passing uh, into Greece. And I think that's what you have uh, before you. Is this in the bulletin, Mark? The, the second missionary journey? Um, so this is where we, we left off, is Paul has been on this journey all the way to the far right. You can see Antioch, and Paul has moved from Antioch through uh, Turkey, there under the heading Asia. You can see those churches, Derby, Lystra, uh, Iconium, Antioch. Those are the churches that he first planted in Turkey. He has been through those churches several times now. Every, every time he's going and coming on a missionary journey, he pops in on these churches. He has a great love for, for these churches. And remember, they, they saw him beaten, stoned, uh, chased out of town. And Paul has had a real heart for them, which is obvious by his continual visits to them to come back and encourage them in the faith. But then you see that he, he, he went up into Macedonia, top of the map, Philippi, and then down into Greece, and that is where we've left him. When we left off with Paul, he was at the end of this journey there in Corinth, acting as a tent maker, but also preaching the word faithfully. And we've acknowledged that as he's gone city to city, he's followed this basic pattern. He comes into a city, he finds the Jews there. He finds his kin. He finds those who have any concern for a covenant with God. And he goes to the synagogue or in Philippi down to the river, to the meeting place. He finds the Jews and there he preaches to them the fact that Christ is Messiah. Calls them to their own Messiah. But what we find is that generally as he goes, he is rejected. Not in mass. Not, not in complete totality, in mass, but not totality. Uh, generally, he's rejected, but some will believe, and a church will be planted there. But when he's kicked out of the synagogue or away from the Jewish community, he then heads out to the streets and begins to proclaim it to the Gentiles in the city. And by God's grace, believers are coming. The Lord has told them, don't you be discouraged, Paul. I have believers in each of these cities that I, that I have my people, he says, in these cities, this is just what he said in the last passage we looked at uh, before we ended this in Corinth. Don't be discouraged. I have my people in this city. You go out and preach, and he'll bring them. And so Paul continues to preach faithfully under threats, under hostility, sometimes very active violence. And Paul is preaching, and the Lord is building his church. So that's Acts to where we are at this point. Now, what we have today, and Mark read our text overlapping two chapters, uh, the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19, and what we have in these chapters is the end of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third. So on the map that you're looking at, we would begin at Corinth. He heads to Ephesus. Remember, you heard as Mark read it, he goes to Ephesus. They ask him to stay. He says, no, I'm not staying, and he heads home. He heads back uh, uh, to Antioch. 
back to Syria, back to the home base. But then, very quickly in the text, we have a turnaround and he comes back to Ephesus. So on the third missionary journey, he would leave Antioch, go through those same cities again, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, but then this time go right to Ephesus. And that's where our whole text takes place there, from Corinth through Ephesus to Antioch, from Antioch through those churches beneath Galatia and back to Ephesus. That's what's taking place in our text this morning, the end of the second journey and the beginning of the third. Now, I want to think about two things here in our text, uh, observations, if you will. I want us to think about three characters, well, four, Priscilla and Aquila, we'll count them as one, but, but they're two individuals, but they're always mentioned together. Um, I want us to think about three characters that we have in this text to hold them up as representatives of the early church and, and challenges for us as we think about our ministry within the kingdom. And then secondly, I want us to think about this outpouring of the Spirit. So let's think about the three characters that we have in the text. We have Apollos, we have Priscilla and Aquila, and we have, of course, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, we know, is in the midst of his journeys. He has been called to be a minister to the Gentiles, and he has taken this banner up and, and, and this mantle, and he's gone. And I mean, the, 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 just the fact that he's walking, riding, sailing, I mean, on, on these journeys uh, is, is fascinating. It's just incredible. We take for granted the mileage that Paul is putting on as he hikes around proclaiming the gospel. And by the way, coming into communities that have never heard anything about Jesus, though there are Jews there, so they have some old covenant back and proclaiming the gospel, setting up churches, and moving on. It's really, it's really uh, a, a stunning uh, uh, thing, these three missionary journeys. So we know, we know who Paul is. But again, we get a glimpse of Paul's character here and his love for the church, one in that he keeps on moving. He goes to Ephesus. We'll see him back in Ephesus. And then uh, in, in, in uh, I believe, next week, we're, we're really going to focus on his ministry in Ephesus. So we see his love for the people and for the gospel there. But the thing that I want to reflect on with the Apostle Paul uh, today is, again, this notion of the fact that he keeps passing through these cities, uh, particularly those ones in southern Galatia, that region of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And the fact that Luke, Luke skips over many of the places that Paul goes, we're, we're sure. He stops in other places. Luke doesn't mention it. But each time, Luke has mentioned to us the fact that Paul passes through those particular cities. And again, it's one of those things, it's not, it's, it's not overtly said in the text, but it's a little window into the pastoral heart of this man, of the Apostle Paul. He takes time to visit the churches that he's planted. Churches, by the way, that saw him persecuted. We saw this, in fact, in the first missionary journey. We don't have the map in front of us of the first missionary journey. But if you look at the map, you would see he goes, in the first journey, he goes from Antioch down to Cyprus. Then from Cyprus, he went up uh, sort of northwest to the other Antioch, known as Pisidian Antioch. And then he went from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra and to Derby. 
And as he made that trip, of course, he was beaten. He was dragged out of the city at one point and stoned, and you'll remember, left for dead. I mean, that, that means they didn't throw a couple rocks at him while he's running out of the city. I mean, they actually thought they killed him. That's how severe it was. Paul continued on to the next city. He went from Iconium to Lystra. He went from Lystra to Derby, And then from Derby, just looking at the map, and we commented on this at the time, if you were in Derby and had just been chased out of the cities behind you and be, been stoned and left for dead, and now you get to Derby and you're thinking, where do I go next? Well, if you look on the map, the next city is Tarsus. If you know anything about Paul, you know Tarsus is home. He is Saul of Tarsus. It's your hometown. And that is on the way back to your second home now, Antioch, your home base. It's like the obvious trek to take here is to go from Derby, get out of town while you can, get home for some home cooking back in Tarsus, visit some friends, get some downtime, head back to Antioch, and then regroup, and maybe head on on your second missionary journey. But you'll remember from that journey, that is not what he does. He gets to Derby, turns around, and heads back into those cities, goes back through Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and then down to the coast, and then sails straight across back to Syrian Antioch. Paul loved these people. Paul had a concern for them and their faith, so much so that he was willing to put himself clearly in harm's way, even to go back into these cities and to encourage the saints. These are, these are people who had never heard the gospel before, and now they've seen the supposed minister of the gospel dragged out, beaten, and almost killed. And Paul comes back to remind them of the truth of the gospel, to call them to stand firm, to remind them, in fact, as he says in Iconium, I believe, it is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of of heaven. Remember that. Don't forget that. This is not abnormal. This is not unusual what you've seen in me. This is what we sign up for when we sign up to follow Jesus. Jesus says we must pick up our cross and follow him. If any man seeks to save his life, he must lose it. Imagine that. That's your message to new converts. But this is Paul's message. And he loves this church, these churches, and he continues to go through and to encourage them. So that's one thing that we see refreshed to us again with Paul. But then also, we're reminded about Paul that as he comes back into Ephesus now, he does as he was inclined to do all the time, right? This is now, he, now his third missionary journey. He comes back to Ephesus, and what does he do? He goes to the, to the synagogue and preaches to the Jews. Again, this was his habit. As he wrote to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And Paul follows this pattern in his ministry. He comes into a city, he goes first to the Jew, first to the invited guest from the parable of Jesus in Matthew 22, right, the wedding banquet. You, 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 you come to the invited guest, those who hold the invitation in their hand, and you say, hey, the party started, come on. And when they kick you out and when they seek to kill you, then you say, fine, I will go to the highways and the byways and call whoever will come. But that's the pattern of the kingdom, and that's the pattern that Paul follows in his ministry. He's fearless. And he comes again to the Jews, 
And once again, he is rejected. But he gathers up these disciples. Interesting, it's 12 disciples there in Ephesus. He gathers up 12 disciples and he begins to teach them and establish them as the bedrock of this church. And we're going to see, when we get to chapter 20, Paul's deep love for these men. He loves the church up in Galatia, but he loves these men. And we're going to see that when he concludes his third missionary journey, and he heads back to Jerusalem, where already people will be coming to him with a prophetic word saying, I don't think it's going to end well for you in Jerusalem. Maybe you shouldn't go. Paul gets a sense from the Lord that he's in trouble, that his ministry is coming to an end, but he's going to go anyway. But before he does, we'll see he will actually sail to Miletus there at Turkey and call the elders of Ephesus, I'm assuming it's these guys, to come down and meet with him. And with great weeping, he will spend time with them. His words to them are really, uh, really great. Again, we'll get to that in chapter 20. But, but Paul, again, invests himself in the lives of these men. He loves them. He gathers these disciples and he begins to teach them. And then also we see of Paul, not only again a lover of the church, a gatherer of disciples, but he, he, his ministry of teaching. He goes into the synagogue, he's kicked out of the synagogue, well, he, he leaves the synagogue, they reject him, and then he heads to the hall of Tyrannus. This is in uh, Acts chapter 19 and verse 9. But when some of them were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, this is what Christianity was being called at the time, the way, but they spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them. He withdrew the disciples and reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, the hall of Tyrannus was this lecture hall there in Ephesus, this school where people would come and debate and lecture. And Paul was going there daily teaching and challenging, just like he did at Corinth, just like he did at Athens, going to the thinkers going to the cultural center, not just on the fringes, though he's happy to be there too, but going right into the center and confronting the thinkers of his day with the truth of the gospel. So if we had forgotten, this story gives us a refresher on the very nature and character of the Apostle Paul. But then there's Apollos. And not only Apollos, but Priscilla and Aquila. And in our text, their stories in chapter 18 are tied together, so I want to reflect on them for a second, for I think we have something to learn from these three also. Apollos, we're told, was an educated Jewish man who was living in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt became a real hub for Jewish exiles, people who had fled and, and landed there, and a whole community had been established in Alexandria. From this time forward, even in the early church, it is going to be one of the great theological centers of early Christianity. It's amazing to think this, that Egypt would be the, uh, one of the great hubs of the early church, but it was. In the early church, there were five great seats of, of power, authority, theology, and Alexandria was one of them. Antioch was one of them. Jerusalem was one of them. Rome was one of them and Constantinople later was one of them in, in, uh, in Western Turkey. But Alexandria, Egypt became a real center of Orthodox Christianity. 
we say the Nicene Creed, first Sunday of every month. The Nicene Creed came out of the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was held because of a great battle that took place in Alexandria. In Alexandria, Bishop Alexander and then later Bishop Athanasius were the ones who stood for the triune faith against the archeretic Arius. And that confrontation was finally resolved at the Council of Nicaea. We get that creed because of the faithfulness of the Bishop of Alexandria, Bishop Athanasius. So Alexandria was a real center of theology and leadership within the church. Apollos is from there. Now again, Athanasius is not until the fourth century, so it's going to take time before Orthodox Christianity develops there. Remember, now it's a hub of Judaism. But Apollos is from there, and we're told he's well-educated. But he's well-educated in Judaism. But he's anxious for even, if you will, cutting-edge Judaism. He's, he's tracking with things because the Judaism he knows is the Judaism handed down from John the Baptist. The extent of his understanding kind of tops out at John the Baptist. He understands what John has been saying, that now is a time of preparation. Now is a time of repentance. Now is a time to prepare for the great and awesome day of the Lord that we heard about in Joel. And John is saying, repent, prepare yourself, prepare the way for the Lord. So Apollos is going around and he's taking up that, that message and he's proclaiming it and teaching it. And he ends up in Ephesus. And there, also in Ephesus, is Priscilla and Aquila. And what I love about these three as their stories kind of come together here is you have the learned Apollos. Uh, so I'm going to guess in some ways he's an intimidating guy. If you've ever been around a very learned person, um, you know, you might question whether or not you should go correct them. But Priscilla and Aquila do just that. They hear Apollo's teaching and what he's saying is good stuff. It's just incomplete. They've been hanging out with the Apostle Paul. They know the rest of the story. They know, in fact, that, yes, the time of preparation has come, but we're on the other side of that now. The king has come. The way has been prepared, and Jesus Christ has come. The great and awesome day of the Lord has fallen on Jesus. And he has been raised from the dead, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the gift of the Spirit has been poured out. Priscilla and Aquila know this. And so they hear the educated, I'm sure the eloquent, Apollos teaching. And when he's done, they ask if they can have a word with him. And they tell him, hey, good stuff, good stuff. But you need to hear the rest of the story. And they tell him. And what I love about this is, at least according to the text that we have in Luke, Apollos receives it that there's unity between Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos, that the way that Priscilla and Aquila confront Apollos with something he needs to hear must have been done in a gracious way. And in Apollos, he has the humility to receive it from Priscilla and Aquila, to be told that he does not have full understanding, that there's something else he needs to hear. He does receive it, and he goes off now teaching it gladly. 
and he says, you know what, I want to take this over into Greece. And so he hops over into Greece with a letter of recommendation from Priscilla and Aquila, who have already been there with the Apostle Paul. And they send a letter saying, hey, when Apollos gets there, receive him. And again, to me, it's just a wonderful, beautiful picture of this cooperative, co-working with the, with the church and its leadership. The Priscilla and Aquila feel the desire and the need to confront Apollos, and so they have the courage to do it. Apollos has the humility to receive it. Priscilla and Aquila are willing to recommend Apollos to their old place, their old stomping grounds where they were the, they were the leaders, but to say, hey, receive Apollos when he comes and receive his teaching. I don't know. It's just a beautiful and grand picture of humility, fruit of the Spirit, co-working for the sake of the kingdom. And I think we have a lesson to learn from it. One, to be bold to speak when correction needs to be offered. To be careful how we do it. Our word of exhortation today, even in Matthew chapter 7, be careful how you judge. Be discerning but be careful how you judge. And what it seems to me is that Priscilla and Aquila judged well. That they were able to remove all planks from their eyes and out of genuine love for Apollos and out of genuine love for the church, they helped Apollos get a speck out of his eye. They helped him see clearly about the message that was needed to be proclaimed and about the work of the kingdom. And what's awesome about Apollos is that he was willing to have Priscilla and Aquila put their fingers in his eye. <laughs> that they were willing to say, go ahead and get it out. He was willing to say, go ahead and teach me what I don't know. I'm a learned man, right? I have an excellent education, but Priscilla and Aquila, teach me what I don't know. And there's humility. So one, courage, and two, humility, we see in these two. So three wonderful characters in the story. Now, finally, the story of the, uh, the gift of the Spirit that falls upon the church at Ephesus and these men. Paul arrives. He comes to the men and asks them whether or not they have received the Spirit. And innocently and wonderfully, they say, we didn't, we didn't even know there is a Holy Spirit. It's, it's amazing to put yourself back to just do, you know, anytime we study history, it's it's amazing, it's a wonderful thing and a challenging thing to put yourself back in the shoes of those men and women at that time. It's very hard to do this. This is why studying history is hard because we bring all of our assumptions and all of our beliefs and all of our understandings back into the study with us. But these men, think about trying to understand the Trinity. Think about trying to understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Think about trying to understand the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and monotheism at the same time. Very challenging. Paul asks them, have you, have you received the Spirit? They said, we, we, what Spirit? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Paul says, great, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna t I would love to have been in that conversation because Paul breaks down, I'm sure, the, the nature of the triune God to them and then the gift of the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Now, when we did our little run-through of the book of Acts, you'll remember that I mentioned the falling of the Spirit, if you will, in Acts chapter 2. That was the gift of Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon his church. The wind blows, the, the flickers of fire on their head, and they receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit, 
the empowerment of the Spirit, the boldness of the Spirit to go forth and to be his witnesses in a hostile world. Remember, these were disciples whose knees were buckling, who were cowering in the face of threats, who now, once they receive the Spirit, march out into the streets of Jerusalem, look at the very people who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, who were chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, and now proclaim boldly the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. You yourselves see, saw what he did, and you crucified the Lord of glory, and you will stand to give an account before the Lord God. I mean, wow boldness because of the anointing work of the Spirit. But as the gospel now went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria out to the Gentile lands, that same manifestation of the Spirit has fallen as the gospel broke one barrier and then another and then another. As the gospel came to the Samaritans and they believed, the Holy Spirit came again with that same Pentecostal manifestation, particularly the outward speaking of tongues and so forth, manifesting the fact that they had the same spirit as the apostles had. How else would the apostles believe that the Samaritans had the same Holy Spirit? the same level of anointing, different calling, but the same anointing as they had. And then in Acts chapter 10, as Cornelius, this Gentile God-fearer, believed the Holy Spirit fell upon him, and they said, we should baptize him. And some of the Jews said, we can't just baptize, baptize this Gentile. And you'll remember, Peter says to them, well, if they've received the same Holy Spirit that we've received, how can we withhold full membership to them? How can we withhold baptism to them or from them? That is, that the gift and manifestation of the Holy Spirit was an outward testimony to Peter, to the apostles, to the Jews, that these men, yes, even a Roman centurion, this Gentile God-fearer, has the same anointing, has the same spirit, has the same standing, has the same acceptance within the kingdom of God as does the apostle Peter. And now, in Acts chapter 19, Paul makes his way to Ephesus and meets with these Gentiles, and they believe. He asks them about the Holy Spirit they don't know. They've only been baptized with the baptism of John. That is a baptism of repentance. Again, that preparatory Baptism, but they have not been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have not received the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches them, baptizes them, and they then receive the same Spirit with the same outward manifestations as Cornelius had, as the Samaritans had, as the apostles had. The gospel, if you will, has reached out into the outermost parts of the world, symbolically so, as it's reached, if you will, Western Turkey. And there, again, in a Gentile city, the, the uh, gospel has come and the Holy Spirit has fallen and the outward manifestation is there. Now, just a couple words about this, and again, we can discuss it in Sunday school. What we have here, again, is not the giving of the gift of tongues. Paul does address that in the book of 1 Corinthians. What we have here, again, is that Pentecostal manifestation that the Spirit has come, that outward manifestation of the internal presence and anointing 
of the Holy Spirit. And no, it doesn't happen everywhere the gospel goes, but in the book of Acts, Luke has highlighted it for us in these four occasions. I believe, and I'm not the only one who believes, but I believe to declare, to manifest the fact that wherever you are in the church, whether you're a Gentile believer out in Ephesus, whether you're a God-fearer Roman centurion, whether you're a Samaritan, whether you're a Jew living in Jerusalem, all of us are full members within the kingdom. All of us share the anointing work of the Holy Spirit. The point that Luke is making is that the anointing work of the Spirit is not for a few, but it's for all. It's for all the church, for all who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. All receive the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And all are full members within his church. In the book of Joel, the prophecy that we read for our Old Testament reading today, Joel takes us down the story of redemption. Judgment is coming. An army is going to come, the likes of which you've never seen. It's going to be awful. The earth is going to quake. It's going to be like an army of locusts. And you are going to fear and you're not going to know what to do with yourself. But cry out to the Lord. He might have mercy. In fact, he will have mercy. And the day is going to come when the army will be turned away, the judgment will go away, and the land is going to flourish. And on that day, when the great and awful day of the Lord has come, after that day, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Young men will dream dreams, old men will dream dreams, young men will prophesy, they'll see visions, all these wonderful things. And what we see in the book of Acts is that day has come. The great and awful day of the Lord has also come, in part. We've been studying the timeline of the story of redemption, right? In some sense, the great and awful day of the Lord is that final day of judgment, and it is yet to come. But the good news of the gospel is that for those who are in Christ, the great and awful day of the Lord has already come. It has come upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That great and awful day has fallen on Jesus Christ at Golgotha, so that the darkening of the sky, the tearing of the veil, the coming of this great and awful army, if you will, the falling of the wrath of God has fallen upon Jesus Christ. And for us who are in him, it's done. It's done. The judgment of the Lord is completely, 100% extinguished upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other side of that great and awful day of the Lord comes the gift of the Spirit. This is the day we enjoy. This is the day that Jerusalem enjoyed, and Judea, and Samaria, and even the Ephesian believers. All the church thereafter enjoys that awesome day of the gift of the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, here's the truth for you. You have been, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have been empowered with the same Spirit. You have been anointed with the same spirit, for the same service within his kingdom. You lack nothing. All that is required of you, all that you need to be bold in the face of hostility, all that you need to be bold truth proclaimers of the gospel in a world much like Paul's has been freely given to you in the gift of the spirit. It has fallen on you. That's the point of these four Pentecostal manifestations is this is for the whole church and it's yours in him. 
May we look at Paul, Apollos, Priscilla. May we look at the 12 disciples there in Ephesus. And may we be challenged, chided, exhorted to be faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ in our city, in our towns, in our workplace, in our families. You have been equipped and anointed to that end. May we be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Luke's recording of these stories. We thank you for the characters therein. We thank you for Paul, for his love, his faithfulness to you and to the church. We thank you for Priscilla and Aquila and their willingness to confront the learned Apollos, to call him to the side and to teach him what he did not know. And we thank you for the humble Apollos, Father, who was willing to have a speck removed from his eye, who was willing to learn what he did not know and to receive the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But most of all, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you that the great and awful day of the Lord, the coming of your infinite wrath and judgment, has already fallen upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that we in him are free, spared, delivered. And not only delivered, but filled with your spirit, anointed empowered, emboldened to be your faithful servants. Forgive us, we pray, for giving in to cowardice. Forgive us, we pray, to giving in to apathy. Forgive us, we pray, for giving in to distraction. Make us, we ask, faithful servants who act in the power of your Spirit, who live out the light of our baptisms, that we might be faithful servants of yours, faithful servants of the kingdom of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.